Hello, everyone. It's good to worship with you. My name is Josh Coker. Uh, it's good to worship with you wherever you are. You know, we think about all these little pockets and kind of microcosms of the body of Christ speckled throughout our, our region, our city, our, our state, and across the United States, all coming together now to worship our Heavenly Father, to bring praise to the name uh, of Jesus Christ uh, by the power of the Spirit. Uh, and it just shows our unity in Christ. We're worshiping together in spirit. And as good as it's going to be to come back together and worship together, it's good to worship together in spirit, even as we're throughout these stay-at-home orders, uh, etc. So it's good to be with you. It's good to worship, good to bring the word. Uh, again, we're continuing to use the Crossroads at Home hashtag. Uh, so share that on Facebook and other social media sites, Crossroads uh, at Home uh, hashtag, uh, as we're continuing to get through this, another way of showing uh, our unity together. A few quick announcements before we dive into the word. One is next weekend, Dave's mentioned it a couple times, is going to be communion. So May 9th and 10th, we are going to celebrate and remember communion together, that same essence in spirit. We're going to come together uh, in the spirit. So if you have bread and grape juice, you're going to be set. If not, uh, you want to head to the store and pick up those items for next weekend. Uh, and if you're not able to get those, uh, please let us know. Contact the church. Let one of the hosts know uh, of the online campus uh, because we'd love to get that for you and get that to you for that special celebration and remembrance next weekend. Uh, additionally, our team has been working very hard in prepping for the summer semester of communities. So we're full steam ahead. It's going to look a little bit different, but praise the Lord for technology. Uh, but signups and the catalog is going to be ready next Saturday, May 9th. And so uh, you'll want to uh, check out the catalog, sign up for a group. They will start the second week in June. So we're full steam ahead and we're going to adjust to however the stay-at-home orders and everything, uh, how that all pans out. But uh, we're still going to meet together uh, with technology uh, to start out this semester. So May 9th, uh, look at the catalog, sign up for a class. They will start the second week of June. We've been in a series, as the bumper stated, asking for a friend. And, and Pastor Davis mentioned a few times what that hashtag represents on social media. It's this, this idea when you have a question, when you have a concern, or, or you, that you're either scared to ask or embarrassed, uh, you, you present it like you're asking for someone else, uh, this asking for a friend. And, and we notice that this happens with Christians as well, that we have these questions, that we have these concerns, that, that we're too afraid to ask someone, or, or maybe we feel like we're we're going to be too spiritually immature if we're asking that, or, or too silly, or, oh, we should know this, or maybe we're afraid of what the answer is going to be. And so we're trying to wrestle with some of these tough questions of the faith that many of you asked, many of us have asked, but maybe too afraid to ask. And so we're hashtag asking for a friend. We've talked about spiritual stagnation and, and not growing in, in quarantine. And we talked about disagreeing with others and, and being tolerant and intolerant. And can we love them? And, and we're getting into a weighty topic today as well. And can I lose my salvation? Or I guess better put, if we're doing the hashtag asking for a friend is, can my friend who's a Christian lose his or her salvation? Can a Christian lose their salvation? Hashtag asking for a friend. If you would turn with me to 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1, either in your Bible, your electronic uh, device, 1 Peter 1. And, and I ask, you know, some people might be afraid to, to ask this or engage in this, but, but have you struggled with your faith? Do you ever wonder, has the thought crossed your mind, like, am I even saved? How do I know that I'm saved? Is it secure? Did I lose it? Is it possible? to be lost. Some of you might be in that dark place now in the midst of the quarantine and COVID-19 and the uncertainties, the uncertainties over the next few weeks, the uncertainties of the next few years economically of what is going to be in the future for us and for our loved ones and our children uh, and our communities, the unknown, the uncertainty. Maybe you feel you're falling away because of that. There are some believers that seem to never struggle. Uh, they, they seem to live out their faith uh, from the outsider's perspective as, as perfectly. I think about the founder 
of a school in Dallas, Texas, Dallas Theological Seminary. The, the founding president, Lewis Berry Chafer, born in Ohio, 1871, came to Christ at a young age. He started his traveling evangelistic and music ministry at the age of 20. He was a profound Bible teacher and theologian. He was a founding member of a Bible college in Philadelphia. He was a founding president of a seminary in Dallas, loved God's word. He was a board member and oversaw the board of Central American Missions Board. Uh, so I had a heart for the gospel and for missions. He lived simply and he lived faithfully from beginning to end. And we look at that and we see these people and we're like, wow, we're in awe. In a perfect world, that's how we all would be. Now, I am sure throughout Lewis Berry Chaffer's life, he had doubts. I'm sure he struggled. But when we look at it, it seems from beginning to end that there was no question of the loss of salvation. But then on the other hand, we see that in the perfect world. But on the other hand, we see big names like a Joshua Harris depart from the faith. Uh, a prominent pastor and an author who wrote the book, the 90s book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, uh, labeled himself as a non-Christian by all ways in which he terms and defines the word this past summer. What do we do with that? He was a pastor, walked away from the faith. And some of you have, have loved ones, have relatives, have friends, coworkers that seem to have walked away from the faith. What do we do with that? How do we make sense of this? How do we understand our salvation? Is it losable? Is it forfeitable? How can we know? These questions, struggles, and examples are all part of two uh, parts or two um, areas of theology known as eternal security and assurance of salvation. And they're really two sides of the same coin. The eternal security is the objective question, an objective in the sense that it's irrespective, it's independent of our thoughts, our feelings, and our experiences. It either is true or it's not true. It's objective. It either is or it is not. There's no, there's no middle ground. There's no gray. You either, your, your salvation is either secure or it's not. And that's one of the questions we're going to answer today. And then the flip side of that is, can I be assured that I'm saved? Can I know that I'm saved? And that's subjective, the assurance, because that is dependent on our feelings. That is dependent on our experiences. And I can be saved and not feel like I'm saved. And that's the difference between the two. We're going to kind of wrestle with both of these and what the scriptures have to say about them. Now, these issues and these questions have been uh, wrestled with throughout church history. And, and believers who love Jesus have come on both ends of the spectrum. However, we're going to land in one particular place that I think our scripture here today uh, gives abundant evidence as well as the overall witness of the scriptures in totality. So the questions are, is my salvation eternally secure? And can I know and be assured that I am saved? I admit that there is no easier, simplistic answers as we take what I'm going to present as God's truth and we present our own feelings and life experiences and try to mingle these together. It is not easy, but I know that there is hope and there is truth and there are answers. Now, this will not be a theological treatise. So if you want more information, if you want to dive deeper, there's a resource list uh, at the end of the program, the online program, or you can talk to one of the online hosts uh, of the online campus and chat with them and let them know that you'd like to dig a little bit deeper and they'd be more than happy to lead you in that. So we're in 1 Peter 1 and Peter has been dubbed the apostle of hope primarily because of this letter and all that he is going to say about it. He's writing uh, to several believers in several churches uh, across Asia Minor in the first century, which would be modern northern-day Turkey. And he's trying to encourage them as they are coming under the fire of the Roman government as well as their, uh, their former Jewish uh, relatives and uh, way of life, and they're suffering persecution, and they've got questions. Does that sound familiar? Yes, that's almost every single one of the New Testament letters is written to encourage a suffering church, a suffering people, and this one is no different. And Peter opens up this letter 
with an encouragement, drawing their eyes back to God, the God of their salvation. With that in mind, let's pick it up. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And we'll stop right there. Peter jumps right into it by praising God. This isn't uncommon uh, for some of these letters uh, to start with praise. We think of Ephesians 1 as well. We just jumps right in and says, blessed be God, which is another way in the Old Testament saying, praise be to God. God be worshiped. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I find it fascinating because he knows they're suffering. He knows they're hurting. He knows they have questions. And I think to myself, uh, when I hear people suffering or, or hurting or going through difficult times, whether it be uh, a family member or uh, uh, a neighbor or a person in the church, my, my first response is to be like, ah, I'm so sorry that's happening. Uh, I, I wish I could do something. I wish I could take that. It's, and that's empathy, and that's good. And I'm not saying Peter here is not being empathetic, for he knows suffering as well. He'll ultimately be martyred for his faith and following of Jesus. But he starts right out of the gate by bringing them beyond their suffering, by taking them to the truth that lies beyond it, which is tangible, which is concrete, and that is that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is worthy of praise. To him be the praise. And you're thinking, okay, well, they're suffering. How does that help? Well, he's reminding them, why is he, God, praiseworthy? Well, he continues on. Because according to his mercy, he has caused them to be born again. In the Greek here, it literally reads, the one who, according to his great mercy, rebirthed us. The one who, according to his great mercy, rebirthed us. Or rebeget us, to use an older term. Who did it? God. That's why he is praiseworthy. In order to address the question of, can I lose my salvation? We've got to start at the beginning. Where did it come from? How did you, quote unquote, gain it to begin with? Was it anything that you had done? Or is it a gracious gift of the Heavenly Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? And that leads us to our first point. Who's behind it all? Who's behind our salvation? Our salvation is God's work, not ours. Who's behind it all? Us or our merciful God? Did you gain your salvation by your own doing? Or did you receive it? This rebirthing, is also known by another term called regeneration. We've been regenerated by God. And we have to ask, that precedes faith. Our regeneration, our rebirth precedes faith in the God who lives, the God who raised Jesus from the dead has made us born again, born anew. He's regenerated our hearts, awakened us to his love, his truth, his gospel, that we would respond in faith in Jesus. God was at work in you long before you were working for him. He was at work in you long before you turned to him in faith. It is often put this way. How much say did you have in your physical birth? The timing of it, the month, the day, the hour, the state, the country, 
and all of that. How much did you decide? <laughs> None of it. And I think that is why this imagery is so powerful of rebirth. Because when we reflect on the only birth we know, a physical birth outside of what we know now as believers, the only birth we know is that we had nothing to do with it. And yet it determines almost everything about us. Does it? Where we are born affects almost everything. A New Testament scholar, Karen Jobes, when commenting on this section of 1 Peter, writes, It is difficult to imagine a more sweeping concept than new birth. Just as people receive their ethnic identity, their citizenship, their socioeconomic class, and their innate potentialities or possibilities from their biological parents, Christians have a new identity, a new citizenship that redefines their relationship with society and transforms their identity and their character. That's all wrapped up in your rebirth, in being born again and who was responsible for it. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter begins his letter of encouragement to these struggling believers, reminding them that he is worthy of their praise, that although they are suffering, they need to remember that they are now a part of a new citizenship, a new kingdom. They have a new identity because of what God has done for them and in them. And it leaves new potentialities to love him and to love others as he asks us to. But we also have a living hope. They were, they were reborn into this living hope. And it's alive because Jesus of Nazareth is alive. He has been raised from the dead. It is not a dead hope. It is not a stagnant hope. It is a living, active hope. And we've mentioned it before that hope, biblical hope, is not the hope that we know of. It's not a wish. It's not a desire. I hope it doesn't rain today. And I hope I get to do this. No, it is expectation. It is confidence. It's assurance that we have good reason to believe that this will happen. It is a living hope. And it was made possible because Jesus walked out of that grave some 2,000 years ago. And that's all fine and good. But still sometimes as we're struggling and as believers are struggling, no doubt as these believers and northern Turkey were struggling, they ask, but is it worth it? Is it worth it if I'm asking these questions, if I'm struggling, is it really worth it? Why would I put myself through this, the hardships of life, is it going to be worth it? And what does Peter follow that up with? He continues to go on and remind them about their inheritance. And I'm sure some of you have experienced this. I remember when my wife and I, uh, Hope, first started talking and, and dating. Uh, we were both relatively new uh, to the faith and had come back and we met here uh, at Crossroads. And I just remember having those conversations with her. And she's just like, man, it is so hard to be a believer. The things that I used to not even blink at, now I feel oh, this tension in. And, and loving people is a lot harder <laughs> than, than I realized. It was easy, easier to Ignore them to just worry about me, to just do everything for me. It's tough. The life as a believer is not easy, and we have that rebirth. We have God's action and God's hand, God's word, God's people. But still, it is difficult. And we ask ourselves, is it worth it? And so Peter reminds them of this inheritance that they have, that they were reborn to an inheritance. They're reborn to a living hope, to an inheritance. This inheritance is imperishable. It does not perish. It is uh, undefiled. It is not corrupt. It's not tainted with sin. And it is unfading. And this is hard for us to understand because literally nothing in our life, nothing in our world fits this description. Everything that we know, everything that we see, everything that we touch, everything that we experience perishes, is defiled and fades into the hands of time. From vegetation to technology to human life, everything that we know fits into one of these three categories of perishing, defiling, or fading. 
So he reminds it. It's kept in heaven for you. This is to be an encouragement to them. God's caused them to be reborn. Their hope is alive and their inheritance is waiting for them. So if we have an inheritance waiting for us, kept in heaven for us, waiting to be revealed at the last day. And we've got God at the beginning who has revealed himself to us, has rebirthed us. He has started in the in-between. Is it now up to us? Is it now all on our shoulders to get the job done? As if God looks at us and says, all right, champ, I've done what I can do. Hand it over the reins. It's time for you to take over. Hopefully you make it. It's ultimately up to you. Good luck. I think about where we're at in a season of life with our kids. We have three children. Our oldest two are four and two, Ruth and Jack. And uh, we've got a lot of bikes, a lot of bicycles in our garage. And we've got bikes without training wheels. We've got bikes with training wheels. We have bikes with no pedals, uh, the striders. And we're, we're getting to that phase where we're trying to help them uh, learn how to ride a bike. And so you think about this. Is this the image that we should understand our Christian walk and our relationship with God? Is it where I have my four-year-old who can hop up on that bike and she can start pedaling with training wheels? She's even actually made it several feet without training wheels as well. And she loves it and we helped her. And then we have my son who is absolutely mortified of getting on this bike. That even the littlest wobble, he feels like he's going to fall and, I don't know, break his head open or get injured or something like that. But where am I at in all that? I'm with him. I'm holding on to the bike. But is it true that, that as we grow in our faith and throughout time, that as, as our bike gets bigger and as the training wheels come off, that we have this Kodak moment, this movie moment where God just pushes us and we start doing it all on our own. And obviously, as a child in development, you're feeling that sense of pride and, and independence and responsibility. It's all natural. It's a part of growing up, and we need that. But does that describe our faith? In this in-between, the inheritance is set. The beginning was God. Is it now up to us to pedal that bike without any training wheels, without his hands, as he has pushed off? Is that true? Well, let's keep reading. What does verse 5 Say, as we go back to verse five, who by God's power? So who's the who? He was just saying that there's an inheritance in heaven, kept in heaven for you. So he's talking about the you, the believers, the us. And so we are the who, the you who are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what is happening we are, by God's power, being guarded through faith for that salvation, which is to be revealed the last time. God's power is guarding us. God's power is keeping us. God's power is sustaining us. We may lose the training wheels. We may gain a different bike, a better bike, one that you can travel miles on and not just 10 feet without your legs giving out. And I hope that's true. That's a description of our maturing faith. But God never lets go. There's no final push off of God. But a consistent and a present hold. No matter if we veer off course or we tip or we think we're going to fall over, his presence and his hold is gripping us because it is his power that is guarding us unto that salvation. And that's our second point. Is it all on us to make it to the end? No. God's power is what keeps us faithful throughout our life. Peter, again, with this other encouragement, he's trying to help them. He's saying, please, don't give up, because it's God who gave you this salvation. It is God that is guarding you to this ultimate salvation. Be encouraged. You will persevere because God is preserving you. Because God is preserving you. You will persevere because God is preserving you. And that word for guard 
in the Greek, phreo, hard phonetically to say, phreo, uh, to provide security, to watch, keep, to guard. It's the same word used in Philippians 4, where Paul says that uh, the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Obviously, this, this time of standing guard, of being on the lookout constantly, of not letting any danger come in or come at you. Now, I've never been popular enough or famous enough to have a physical bodyguard. I don't know what that would feel like, but each and every one of you and myself as believers have a spiritual bodyguard in God and specifically his power. And he goes on to say that his power is protecting us or guarding us or keeping us through faith. Faith is the vehicle that he uses. So there's the tension. And there's a tension throughout all of our life. And there's mystery in our understanding of our salvation. We have God's role. But we have our role. There's a tension. There's ultimately a mystery between there of how both of those gel together, but we know that he rebirthed us. We know that he is keeping us, but we know that we have to have faith. And so there's where people will say, see, that's where it is. You have to have the faith. So technically, isn't it up to you? Because if you stop having faith, where'd God's vehicle go to sustain you? Sure, God gave you a bike. Sure, God's holding on to the bike, but what if you get off of it? What if you get off the bike? Well, is that possible? Is that what he's getting at? This through faith. Well, what does faith mean? Faith is continued trust, which leads to faithfulness. This continued trust that leads to faithfulness and faithfulness to the Lord, to his word, to his will. So which is it? God's power or our faith? Well, it seems to me that if Peter's point was, that you are being guarded for that salvation in the last day. If it was all up to you and up to us, why would he include God's power? Why would he need to say you're being guarded by your own faith? Continue to have faith and you'll be guarded until the end. But he doesn't. He says by God's power. We can't get off the bike. And the truth is we don't want to get off the bike. We wouldn't want to get off the bike. God's power protects us because his power is the means by which our faith is sustained. We stay on that bike by God's power. We don't want to get off and he doesn't let us get off. His power keeps us on that bike. It sustains us. I believe that is the power of God that myself and many of you have experienced when you are in the darkest moments of your life. When you've lost a child, when you've had a miscarriage, you've watched your parents die, you've battled infertility, witnessed family issues and abuse, or experienced that yourself, divorce, Injustice, persecution, rejection, depression, anxiety, disappointment, deep pain, deep hurt. You name it. I believe it is the power of God where in those moments you still say with your arms open, your head up, Lord, I believe you. I trust you. This hurts. This is painful. This is not what I want. But you come to the point where Peter comes. And Lord, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That's the power of God. And as we reflect on the injustices in the world and the pain that plagues us and our loved ones, and so many examples that many of you are experiencing now or friends or family that are going through. Obviously, you have the coronavirus making it apparent. We're still able to say, where else would we go? Lord, I believe you. That's the power of God at work keeping you on the bike. Sure, you may not be pedaling in those times, but he's still got you. And he is still pushing you. So in the first three verses of our text, three through five, Peter already teaches and reminds his people in northern Turkey and us today that God started their salvation. He rebirthed them. 
and he has rebirthed us according to his mercy, according to his steadfast love, there is an inheritance awaiting for us, kept imperishable, unfading, and undefiled for us, and God's power is sustaining our faith through it all in three verses. Peter answers our questions. Therefore, I would say based on this passage and others throughout the New and Old Testament that no, you cannot lose your salvation. Hashtag answering for a friend. But this has been known, what I've just presented to you has been known by another name of once saved, always saved. And that gets a little bit of a bad rap because then we ask questions. That's all great, Josh. I see that. I see what you're saying. But what about Josh Harris? What about my cousin, my son, my daughter, my nephew, my mom, my grandparent, my friend, my coworker? What about them? What do we do with them? How do we understand? Are they still saved? Once saved, always saved? Even against their will, God will not let them get off that bike, no matter what they say, no matter what they do. And the simple answer is... I don't know, because I don't know their hearts. I don't know their minds. I don't know their thoughts. But I think we get a clue and a better understanding of salvation as a whole. At the end of verse 5, Peter says, For a salvation, we've been guarded by the power of God through faith. For what? For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Salvation is ready to be revealed In some sense, salvation is not yet. It's already not yet. You see, when we ask this question, can I lose my salvation? And we we say things like once saved, always saved. I think we have such a very narrow view of what salvation is, especially as it's presented in the Old Testament and specifically in the New Testament. Now, if you ask me, can I lose what happened in the past can I lose the one, my salvation if it's only predicated on one prayer and nothing more? I would, I would wholeheartedly reject that that is what salvation is. A better way of, of framing it in our next point is recognizing that our salvation is past and present. That is true. It is past. It has happened. It's present, and, but it is ultimately future. Our salvation, according to the New Testament, is past and it is present, but ultimately our salvation is future. That day where we will experience the imperishable, we will experience the undefiled, we will experience the unfading. Once saved, always saved. Well, it's not just a past event. It is a present reality and it has a future outcome as well. A better way to put it is once saved, always being saved, and will ultimately be saved. I would agree with that. Once saved, always being saved, and ultimately will be saved. That is true, and that's what we see in the New Testament. Our salvation is past. We were reborn, a new creation, a new identity, received the Holy Spirit. We're united with Christ. We're united together as his body. We've joined a new family. Our salvation is present by the work of the Spirit, the guarding of the power, by the power of God. We are being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. We're being saved from the power of sin and death in our lives. Not always being victorious, but the trajectory is upward. We're being saved. We're being renewed. And ultimately, our salvation is future where we will be finally and irrevocably delivered from sin, from temptation, from brokenness, from death, from a cursed earth, and ultimately from the judgment of God on sin. We're saved from that by the blood of Jesus Christ. Once saved, always being saved, will ultimately be saved. So when we think about those people, who struggle, those people who have walked away. When I think about that once saved, always being saved, are they being saved? And if they're not being saved, send an indicator that they weren't. 
at all, but it's tough. But there's also examples. I think about someone that, that I follow uh, on social media who was a believer, renounced his faith, walked away from the faith, became an ardent atheist, uh, almost an atheist apologist, if you would, and then came back to Christ through apologetics as well and is now a Christian apologist again. Now, a lot of times when we're thinking about these people, we're thinking about them in that phase. And obviously he was saved. He came back to Christ. So when we think about your family members, when we think about the Joshua Harris's of the world, if they're not dead, if they're still alive and kicking and breathing, there's hope for them. You need to pray for them, continue to have conversations with them. Because I'm sure with this fella, people were still praying for him. People were still engaging him in conversation in arguments for God's existence and for the truth of Christianity and drawing him back, and he came back to Christ. So we can't always have that mentality that, oh, well, he never was saved. You don't know. He might come back. Might come back. There's proof in that as well. But Peter moves on to uh, our final point, and we want to know sometimes how can we know that we're saved, and we'll get to that in the litmus test, but in this passage specifically, Peter moves on and says, in this you rejoice. In what? Well, we just talked about the first three verses. The beginning, the middle, the end of our salvation that Peter's talking about. You rejoice because of this, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found result in praising glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our trials, our sufferings in this life, especially on account of our faith, shows us the authenticity of our faith. And that's our last point. Authentic or fake? Authentic or fake? The character of our faith is revealed through life's hardships and sufferings. Peter likens it to the purification of gold through the refining process. And that's literally what that words mean, tested genuineness. In the Greek, it's, it's the word dakimion, dakimion, and it's genuineness as a result of a test, genuine, without alloy. And its very definition assumes the testing and the melting of impurities off of precious metals like gold. And yet he says, even gold will ultimately perish. But your faith that has been tested, that is being refined, is worth so much more than that. But he assumes that their faith will be tested. Because another way of looking at it is like, well, I guess we'll never know that we're saved until we get through those tests, until we've persevered, until the end. We can't know. Because we don't know if maybe that last test before we pass away will be the one where we renounce Christ. But Peter here assumes so that the tested genuineness of your faith. He's saying, so that what I already know will be true, that the tested genuineness of your faith will result in praise and glory and honor on the day of Jesus Christ. And why is it that tests and trials reveal the character of our faith, refine us and refine our faith in God? Because trials provoke us as Christians to renounce our faith. Trials and temptations are temptations to renounce our faith, to walk away, to throw in the towel, to say it's not worth it. Trials and temptations are implicitly temptations to renounce the faith, to walk away, to fail. So what's, what's Peter's point? What is he getting at? He's trying to encourage these people that the salvation, the past, the present, and the future, God's got his hands in it all. He rebirthed us. He's guarding them. He's got the inheritance laid up for them with the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last days. If this is true, then it's best to ask if we know that eternal security is true. How can I be sure that I am saved? Because there might be some of you that are wrestling with that and we've all gone through those periods of life where we're like, gosh, how do I know? How do I know I'm not one of those that the Lord will say in the end, sorry, I never knew you. How do we know that? We're going to walk through this litmus test quickly. And it is in Scripture itself, as we're reflecting on these answers, there's always times that our flesh 
and our sinful selves take over and we don't walk in accordance with the manner uh, that we were called to. I get that. But generally speaking, as you're thinking in your heart of hearts, answer these questions honestly. Litmus test. First, what is the object of my faith? What is the object of my faith? What do you mean by that? Well, we talk about faith, and, and faith is still discussed in our society at large. Have faith or, you know, be faithful, uh, etc. But, but what does that mean if you don't know what the object of your faith is? You have to have an object of the faith. Even atheists have faith. Their object is just <laughs> drastically different than ours. What is the object of your faith? Is it in Jesus Christ? Is it in his death and resurrection? Is it in his good news of God's grace that was poured out in his love for you and for me? Is that the object of our faith? Is that what I trust in? Is that what my confidence is in? Or is it something else? Or is it in my works? Is it in me pedaling that bike and staying on that bike Is it in my own religiosity? Is it in my own religious system that I've contrived? Or is the object of my faith just in something I've been told to do? Well, I grew up in a Christian house, and it's the right thing to do to go to church, so I do, and that's what your trust is in. What is the object of your faith? If it's not in Jesus alone, in Christ alone, by his grace alone. Then, then you're missing it. If it's in you or in something else, you're missing it. So ask yourself, what is the object of my faith? Secondly, what is the orientation of my faith? What is the orientation of my faith? Well, what do I mean by orientation? Well, is it oriented toward my gain? Or is it oriented towards loving God, loving others, which is serving others, which is self-sacrifice, pouring myself out for others. Because there's the temptation. Is it, is it simply my orientation? Is it, it's my get out of hell free card? It's my whew, getting, getting a free pass on judgment day? And oh, I'm safe. Is it the joy and the peace? It's like, whew, I became a Christian because it makes me feel better about myself. And that's true. It should. And it does get you out of hell and it gets you to this glorious inheritance. But if that's the main focus, your orientation is wrong. That will not last when trials and temptations come. But if your orientation is to do the greatest commandment, to love God and to love others, that rejects self, that self-sacrifices for the good of others and for God's glory, that is the orientation of our faith. That is what we're called to do. To orienting ourselves to God's will. And that's his will for every believer to love him and to love others. So if your orientation is not geared towards that, think through that, pray through that. So we have what is the object, what is the orientation? Lastly, what is the outworking of my faith? If the object of my faith is Jesus Christ, if the orientation of my faith is to serve God and serve others and to love him and to worship him, then the outworking of my faith should be good fruit. What is the outworking of your faith? What is coming out from you? And this is internal and this is external. This is the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And this is also good works, serving others around you, serving your church, serving your community basking your family in prayer, preaching to the lost, caring and comforting for them. What is the outworking of your faith? When you look at these three things, and I think if you can answer affirmatively, even if you're struggling, which we all do, even if you've fallen, even if you're stumbling, even if you're in those darkest moments, if you can answer those things, as Jesus as towards God for his glory and his plan and his will and bearing good fruit, then you can have assurance that you're saved. You can have both eternal security and assurance. But there's some of us that have been in church our whole life that that might not be true. And there's unbelievers 
that you might be listening, and that might not be true. Those might not be there. But it's not too late. You're still alive. You're still breathing. Blood is still pumping through your veins. So what do you need to do? You repent and you believe you have a change of mind, you have a turning of attitude, an attitude that serves self and looks out for myself to an attitude that turns and serves God and serves others and believes in Jesus and gives himself wholeheartedly or herself wholeheartedly to him. That's what you do. And when you do that, and when you walk with God, and when you walk with his people, and you get into the word, and you seek the other disciplines, and you seek to walk by the Spirit, your object, your orientation, and the outworking will be there. It will. It will. That's the litmus test. And finally, just as by way of application, for those of you that are believers, when we read 1 Peter, and we think about this question of can I lose my salvation, the first thing that I want you and I to be is I want us to be encouraged. That's the point of Peter's opening up with this. It's to encourage the saints, to encourage them that God is in control, that God is their beginning, middle, and end. He is with us, and it is his power, it is his doing that is going to bring us safely. We must be encouraged by that. Reflective, as we talked about the litmus test, but encouraged. So be encouraged. Secondly, be diligent. So we can be encouraged, but that, not, that shouldn't lead to slothfulness. That shouldn't lead to laziness. That shouldn't lead to like, pff, kick back, hands on the head. I'm in heaven now. I'm good. No. We're diligent because that is true. Because God loves us. Because he has done this for us. We must be diligent to orient ourselves in that faith, to have the outworking of the faith of those fruits in our lives, to be diligent to seek him with our whole hearts, to seek to do his will. Be diligent. Be encouraged that you may be diligent. You don't need to be diligent to confirm what God has already done, but by believing and understanding what he's already done, to be encouraged that leads us to diligence and our love and affection for him. And lastly, Remain steadfast. Remain steadfast. The trials come. The deepest, darkest moments of life come for us all. And if we're being honest, that temptation is there. The little lie from the enemy says, just walk away. Just walk away. It'll be easier. This hasn't really panned out for you, has it? Following God and you're suffering persecution lost your job, economy's going downhill, you were diagnosed with cancer, your marriage failed. Yeah, how'd that work out for you? There's that temptation. But remain steadfast, knowing that God is working in you. God is working in that. Can you lose your salvation? I don't think Peter thought so, and I don't believe so either. But if you're there and you have questions, you're wondering, talk to an online host, talk to a Christian brother or sister about the doubts that you're having. Let them be a source of encouragement. Pray through those questions of the litmus test. Paul says, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. And if not, you can repent and you can believe. You can be born anew into the family with a new identity, sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption with the inheritance awaiting before you. And that is good news. Let us pray together. Gracious Father, as we open up your word, we realize that our feelings our experiences in this life confuse us as to the nature of your work and your truth. And Father, we try to reconcile these things, but we know that ultimately your word is truth. Your word is reliable. And your word reveals 
and that you have saved us. We praise you. We thank you for that glorious truth that your power is guarding us. Your power is sustaining our faith, and we praise you, and we thank you. Blessed be your name. And we praise you that you have soared up for us an inheritance that is awaiting us, one like we've never seen before. And we praise you. Father, I pray by your spirit that you would encourage your saints, that you would encourage your people in this time when they are suffering, when they're in their deepest, darkest moments, that you're holding on, that you're not going to let go, that you are going to push them through, that they would be encouraged that they would be diligent all the more to seek you, that they would remain steadfast. Father, we thank you for this unshakable truth. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. And Father, I pray for those that, that have seen and, and heard this litmus test that, that you're pricking their hearts now, that they're not sure that they could answer those correctly, that you would lead them in your kindness to repentance, to newness of life, to true salvation and true faith via rebirth. According to your great mercy, Lord, do a work in them and remind them that you'll never let go. We love you, Lord. Help us, give us the strength to serve you, to be faithful and to endure until the end. We thank you that we will persevere because you preserve us. And we give this to you and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.